Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of James. I, when we sang, when Angie sang for us just now, I highlighted uh, the verse that said, "Though Satan should buffet, the trials should come." Right? Uh, that comes up very much in this part of the book of James. That's maybe why it was on my mind, particularly as I was listening to the words of the hymn. But. Uh, Let's, let's take a look at this together. Uh, I, before I read it, I suppose I should point out that the thing that really sets the context for, I think, where he goes next is the last verse of the previous chapter, which we touched on last week. That uh, Well, let me just pray first, I guess, and then let's pray, and then I'll, I'll start in with this. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, so much for all of your goodness to us. Thank you for your mercy and your kindness. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you, as we just observed at your table, the beauty and the holiness, Lord God, of the sacrifice that you made. And now, Lord, we're thankful for your word. And my prayer, Lord God, is that you would be glorified as your word is preached and taught here today, that your children would learn and be edified, and that we would walk in all of your ways. In Jesus' name, Lord, we pray. Amen. So, verse 18 of James chapter 3 says, Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And to just kind of briefly remember what that verse is talking about, it talks about the fruit of righteousness. What is fruit? Fruit is the the product of something. Fruit is when a farmer farms what he ultimately wants to end up with. Fruit, right? So when it speaks of the fruit of righteousness, it's speaking of ultimately what the desire of the Christian is. We want to live in righteousness. We want to walk in righteousness. We, of course, in and of ourselves, fail. The Bible teaches there's none righteous, right? No, not one. But nevertheless... We strive for it. We strive to walk in righteousness. Now, what we're told in this particular verse, in verse 18, is the context in which the fruit of righteousness is produced. Right? It's sown in what? Peace. Peace. In other words, righteousness in relationships among people and in my own life is produced in the context of a life that pursues peace. You get it? Righteousness is the fruit. Peace is the thing that is sown. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace. By whom? By those who make peace. Right? And right away, and we mentioned this last week as well, so it's a good review. 
but right away you're reminded of the beatitude, blessed are the, the peacemakers, right? And that's what James is talking about here. The person who sows in peace. The person who makes peace. The person who is that one among a group, a body, a church maybe, who is the peacemaker. That person who makes peace is the one who is ultimately sowing that which is necessary to produce what? The fruit of what? Righteousness. Right? Remember where we're at here. We sow in peace and the product is the fruit of righteousness. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Yes? That launches very well into the beginning then of what chapter 4 says. Where do wars and fights come from among you? So he launches right from talking about peacemaking and how peacemaking produces righteousness uh, into then kind of probing inside the hearts and minds and lives of people. Let me read some of this. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Don't they come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but He gives more grace. Therefore, He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Right? So we won't get through all of that today, obviously. But uh, if, you, if you were to step back 
from what I just read, and just think it to yourself, you don't have to call anything out, but, but if, there, if there was one thing that's being zeroed in on here in the text that is an issue in the heart of every human and in the book of James, of course, we're addressing Christians. So it's still an issue in the heart of Christians. What is it? It's pride. It's pride, right? Pride is, pride is what prevents people from pursuing what chapter 3 and verse 18 talked about. That sowing in peace, that making peace. Our pride sometimes prevents us from making peace because we want to fight. We want to... We have to listen, we have to be very careful as Christians not to give ourselves over. It may be stronger in some people than in others, but not to give ourselves over to constantly be contending with one another. We are pursuers of righteousness. Did not Jesus say this? Seek the kingdom of God. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear. Seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus called us to be seekers of His righteousness. Well, how is that righteousness made? It's made in the context of those who pursue peace, not those who pursue trouble. Those who pursue peace, not those who pursue conflict. Those who pursue peace, not those who pursue digging their heels in until they get their way at all cost. Those who pursue peace, not those who have so seared their consciences that nothing is off limits to them when it comes to their relationships with other people and allowing quarrels and struggles to rise up, which is why he goes into what he goes into next. He jumps right from this idea of being a sower and a pursuer and a maker of peace, which is the context in which righteousness then is produced. The fruit of doing, the fruit of righteousness, doing what's right. The, the fruit of righteousness emerges and blossoms in the context of those who pursue peace. But that doesn't come naturally to us. Some people struggle with it more than others, as I said. What comes naturally to us is to get angry, to get bitter, fight. Listen, though Satan should buffet, listen, that's where Satan comes in. And that's where this passage goes. Resist him, right? Buffet, 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 punch, 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 punch. Walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Hold up the shield of faith that you may quench what? Those fiery darts of the wicked one. So if you don't want to think of it in terms of buffeting, punch, 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 punch. Think of it in terms of a, an archer in an ancient army. Boom, 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 boom. Flaming arrows. One after, hold up the shield of faith that you may be able to quench those. See? The Christian is a pursuer of peace. Why? Because the Christian desires the fruit of righteousness to be produced in his life and in the life of his brothers and sisters. He wants to help them as well. That's why we're pursuers of peace. What prevents us from pursuing peace? Pride. Pride. 
And that's ultimately what he gets at. When he says, where do wars and fights come from among you? I know he talks about the desire for pleasure and for lust and not asking and asking wrong. All of that falls under the umbrella of pride, which is ultimately where it goes, which is that quotation from Proverbs 3 in the middle of the chapter, God resists the proud but gives his grace to the humble. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we have a duty to God and to each other to make our lives and our life together as a church a haven from such activity. We've been set free from the law that we may now pursue loving one another, which is the highest of all His commands. We've been set free from the law of the Old Covenant that we now may pursue what? What the New Testament calls the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? To love one another. To preach His gospel. To help each other. To serve one another. But ultimately, to love one another. Oh, you think of that occasion when Jesus got up from the table, took off His outer garments and girded Himself with an apron and then walked around to each one of His disciples like a common servant and washed their feet. And you think of Peter trying to stop Him and Jesus saying, if I don't wash you, you have no part with Me. And Peter then gets it and says, not my feet, but my hands and my head too, right? Because we need to be washed and cleansed by Him. If Jesus washed and cleansed us and in His life washed His own disciples' feet, what are we called to do? We're called to make our fellowship. We're called to make our relationships ones of peace. The essential element that is required that was ever present in the life of Christ and is ever present on the pages of Scripture, including the pages in front of you today, is humility. Humility. The pursuit of peace is often a humble act. The easy road is to perpetuate a fight. The difficult road for the mature is to bite the tongue. This book talked about that. To withhold the angry act. To withhold the vindictive motive. To restrain and exercise self-control. And to humble oneself. And so, S-O-W, peace that righteousness may come and flourish. The immature need the mature to do that. And the body as a whole needs every Christian to grow up and do that. It's a a bit of an irony. It's a bit of a paradox. But maturity is not found in things that are high. Christian maturity is found in things that are low. Real Christian maturity is not found in the outward aggression and pursuit of one's own agenda. Real Christian Christian maturity is found in the humility 
of self-denial and self-control and the pursuit of peace, which facilitates the fruit of righteousness. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Let's stop there and acknowledge something. When James asks the question, where do wars and fights come from among you? That demands that what is James aware of that's going on among Christians? Wars and fights among them. Right? He's asking where do those wars and fights come from? James wants those wars and fights to go away. That's what he said in the previous sentence. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Where are these wars and fights? Where do they come from? You know where they come from? They come from inside us. They come from pride, which is ultimately where it goes. Where do fights come from among you, you people, you believers? And James has written to Christians, right? Jewish Christians in the immediate context, the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad, but definitely to Christians as it's addressed to those who hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so though most of us in the room are Gentiles, not all of us, but most of us in the room are Gentiles, hopefully, Lord willing, we're all Christians. This is written to us. Where do the wars and fights come from among us? They come from what? Selfishness. Pride, basically. Don't they come from your desires for pleasure? May I say to you, and and, and by the way, the idea of pleasure here doesn't just necessarily mean debauchery or physical comfort. Pleasure is anything that pleases me. That's where wars and fights come. Wars and fights come from I want. That's where it comes from. Wars and pleasures come from me wanting and what I want becoming my motive for how I operate. That's where wars and fights come among Christians. See, as Christians, we're not called to be pursuers of simply what we want. As Christians, we're called to be self-denying, Christ-glorifying, Jesus-serving people. That's why he took off the outer clothes and put on the apron to teach us, I'm your master, if I've done this, how much more should you? Right? Where do wars and fights come from among you? Don't they come, it's rhetorical, right? Don't they come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? In your members, members there isn't a reference to people, Reference there, members there is a reference to like the parts of your own body. In other words, where do wars and fights come from among Christians? From the personal desires for pleasure that they have in their own bodies. Right? We all need to stop and to examine ourselves and ask of ourselves, am I doing what I'm doing Because number one, I love Jesus and I want to glorify Him. Number two, I love my brothers and my sisters and I want to see them grow and I want to see them exuberant in their joy and their love for God. And number three, do I have a heart's desire to be obedient? 
For that's the essence of Christian love, love for God. If you love me, obey my commandments. So do I have a desire to glorify God? Do I have a desire to see my brothers and sisters flourish in peace? And do I have a desire to be obedient? Are those my motives? Or are my motives I want? And therefore, what I do is going to be driven by what I want. I submit to you that what James is saying today is that's where wars and fights among Christians come from, is the latter. Our wants. Verse 2, you lust and you don't have, right? Again, this could be a reference to stuff. certainly is. It could be a reference to money. It could be a reference to possessions. Certainly, the love of that is, is a big problem. But it could simply be the love of situation, the love of just getting what you want. You lust and you don't have. You murder and covet and could not obtain. That's pretty strong language. What do you think he means when he says you murder and you covet? Do you think that James is trying to report that Christians are actually killing each other? I tend to doubt that. I'm not aware of any extra-biblical or even in the Bible record of a first-century problem among Christians being that they murder each other. But how can, what can murder be representative of? Yeah, hate. Yeah, very good, by the way. A bunch of you jumped on that when I asked, because you know the Word of God, which teaches that uh, if I hate my brother, I'm a murderer. And so all those things that he's already mentioned in the book, how the, the little spark starts the fire, you know? The unbridled tongue is like a rudder on a ship that's out of control, right? All, all those things. You can murder people with a loose tongue. You can murder people with a selfish spirit. You can murder people by doing things behind their backs that undermine them. You can murder them. Oh, you'll still see them walking around. But they're dead inside. And James says, Christians are doing this to each other. And where does the desire come from? It comes from when I'm motivated by what I want and not by what God desires. So we ought to examine ourselves. Oh, and by the way, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I probably won't make it to this particular verse today, so I want to make sure I point this out because this is a good point here to point this out. Look over at verses 11 and 12, especially in verse 12. It, it, it says, don't speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. I think the first part of that is, is pretty self-evident. Don't speak evil of one another, right? That's, that's pretty difficult to argue with. If you speak evil of one another, you're sinning, okay? Right, you get that. But the next part of it is really, I, I think, eye-opening. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law. And judges the law. What does he mean? 
If you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. See, here's the point. In other words, when you speak evil of one another, you're using the law for something that it was never intended to be used for. You were not, we were not given the law, so I, within myself now, can look and spot everything that I think I need to spot in everybody else. I've used the illustration on myself many times. The law was given in the form of a mirror. A mirror. A reflecting glass. When I look at the law, what I ought to examine by it is myself. Right? And what does the law show me? The law shows me that I'm a sinner and that I need Christ and that that grace is found in Christ. And once I have that grace, I'm set free from the law. But I think it's still good every now and then to look in that mirror and remind myself that I'm redeemed by grace and I can't save myself. See, when I speak evil of a brother, what am I doing? I am taking a law. And listen, it might not even be the law of Moses. It might not even be the law of God. It might just be your own. I mean, we're talking about selfish wanting. It might just be your own sense of what you want. And then you take that and you judge other people by it. And without a shred of conscience, you're willing to like act out things. again. And this happens among Christians. Right? The law was not given to make us judges. The law was given to show us that we have no right to judge anybody. The law was given to show me that I have no right even to call God my Father. That's God's law. Let alone the stuff I just get in my own head. That's why that sentence ends with, there's one lawgiver who's able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge another? Right? God's the only law. God's the one that'll do this. And He will. God's the one that'll do this. And you know what the good news is? Do you know what the Gospel is? Really? God does this. Looks. Able to see by His own law the wickedness in everyone. And here's the Gospel. The judgment and the punishment for all of it He poured out on Jesus for us that we might be redeemed. Now we don't pick up from there and start doing this to each other. You get it? We'll go over that in more detail when I actually get to the verse, but that's part of what's going on in the beginning of all of this. You lust, you don't have. You murder and you covet and you cannot obtain. And so what? You fight and you war. That's, that's a tragedy in the Christian church. I... I was talking to, uh, I forget exactly how he said it, but, but I guess Brother Bob was, uh, at some point during the week, was reading this passage of Scripture, about, uh, trying to keep up with where I'm preaching from and everything else, and we go back and forth. He sent me a text at some point during the week. What did you say? Was it like, James pulls no punches? or, or, or something? I, you know, and and, that, and that's, that's the truth. I mean, this, is, this book of James is like, I, I, I'm, and, and I'm not apologizing, but... But in a way, I sort of am because, like, you know, you come to church and I don't know what you expect of church, but we go verse by verse through the Bible and this is a hard book. It's also a very plain book, isn't it? There isn't a lot of, you read it and it's like, well, what does he mean? No, it's, it's, pretty, it's, pretty, it's pretty straightforward what he's talking about, right? 
I mean, maybe a little difficult to figure out that he's addressing Jews in the beginning and, and how that applies to, to everybody else. But that, that, that takes about one minute to resolve. And then, and then from there, it's all pretty straightforward stuff. But it's pretty challenging. And I want to encourage you to let this stuff challenge you. I want to encourage you to let these things... When I speak these things, I, I am in maybe what is the unenviable and undesirable position of having to stand up in front of people and speak to them. But as I have pointed out to you many times, I'm looking at these things and I'm, 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 I'm so much in my mind thinking of myself and my own need for change here and there in my life, always. And it's always going to be that way. And I want to grow and to grow and to grow. But that's how each one of us needs to look at it. God gives us his word sometimes in very direct and challenging and confrontive form because, listen, 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 because he loves you, right? And he has saved you, and now he desires for you to become something that is more and more and more every day looking like Christ, his son. And these are the things that will shape us and mold us once we get in our minds and get some self-control and, and get into our practices that my life is not about what I want. That's where fights actually come from, is what I want. Because, because if you just have everyone driven by what they want, well, there's about 75 of us in the room today. If you have 75 people and every one of them is just motivated by what they want, then, then I, mean, I, mean, I mean, I guess, I guess the strongest, I guess it becomes Darwinian. We don't want that, do we? It becomes like the survival of the fittest. The biggest bully wins, right? But that's not it in Christ. Christ is the king. Christ is the one. Christ is the one who forms in me what I want. What I want is for Christ to be glorified. That's where peace will come from, is when 75 people all say together, it's not about what I want. It's about the glory of God. If God calls me to humility, then I'm going to humble myself. If God calls me to love, I'm going to, if God calls me to forgive, I'm going to forgive. If, and, and by the way, the passage ultimately goes to what? Resist the devil and he'll free from you, flee from you. These are all ways to resist the devil. Forgive. That's resisting the devil. The devil's work is to be vindictive and, 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 and carry out whatever, whatever evil inclination is in your heart for vindication or revenge or whatever it may be. Jesus, you just heard it today when we were reading. He's nailed to a cross. And the first thing he says after he's nailed to a cross is what? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Wow. Have you ever stopped to think of the depth of that? And then that's our model. That's, our, that's the one that our lives ought to look like. After he's whipped, beaten, almost beyond recognition and almost to death, and then crucified with everyone standing there mocking him, the first thing he says is, forgive them. You know what he's really doing? He's resisting the devil. You lust, you don't have. Murder and covet and can't obtain. You fight in war. Yet you don't have because you don't ask. And that's, there you go. Where am I supposed to find what I pursue in life? By asking. Where am I supposed to find what I need? By asking. Who? God. 
the giver. I mean, back in the beginning of this book, what did it say about God? If you lack wisdom, ask of God, who gives to all liberally without reproach. Jesus spoke of knocking, and it'll be open to you. Ask, it'll be given to you. Seek, and you'll find it, right? I mean, Jesus spoke of these things himself. But then, maybe the most astonishing statement is in verse 3. You ask and you don't receive because you ask amiss. Amiss is a, a word that basically means a miss. That is, you're, you're off target. When, when it, it's actually a very similar word to the word sin. Right? The word sin, if you don't know it, literally what the word sin means is to miss the target. It means to be off target. That's what amiss means as well. You ask off target. In other words, you ask sinfully. You ask wrongly. You're off base. In other words, when you ask God, you're praying, and praying's good, right? But even your praying is based on what you want. Even Listen, when Jesus taught us to pray, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, right? And then what's the next thing? Your will be done on earth as it is. Your will. Your will. Listen, codified into what Jesus himself called the manner in which every Christian ought to pray. And, you know, if if you use the actual words and think through them carefully when you pray, that's great. You use it as a guide to pray, that's great. But Jesus taught us those things that we might know how to pray. And he starts off by just giving God worship, holy is your name, and then praying for the kingdom to come, which is the longing of every child of God that Jesus would return and establish his kingdom, right? But then, then comes the first part of it that is a prayer about my day-to-day existence, right? Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. That's worship to God. Your kingdom come looks ahead to the future and the Lord coming. But then comes the first word about my day-to-day existence. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. James says here, wars and fights come from lusts and desires in our members. We murder and covet because we don't get our way. We murder people because we don't. That should not be. Don't you remember back to the last chapter? Out of the same mouth comes blessing and cursing, right? With our mouths, with our tongues, we bless God. And with our tongues, we curse men who are made in the image of God. What sense is that? My brethren, these things ought not to be so, James says. And now here we are covering something very, very similar. You know, you ask You don't have because you're asking wrong. You're not asking your will be done. You're asking, here's what I want, God. And God says, that's why you don't ask. Because you're just asking for that which you can spend on your own pleasure. There's that word again, right? It's the same word as in verse 1. Verse 1 talked about desires for pleasure warring in your members. Verse 3 talks about your prayers being directed by your pleasures. It's not how we're called to live. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is all of this akin to? What does, what does it really reveal? When my motive... Listen, and listen, I, I don't, it doesn't matter what you do. When my motive... What, 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 what drives me is I'm going to get what I want. Even praying for it. 
All I want is what I want, and that's it. It is a manifestation of loving this world. It's because deep inside the heart, there is that thing that every one of us, myself included, struggles with. Even struggles with understanding what it actually means. Is loving the world. That's why he says in verse 4, adulterers and adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And he calls, he calls people... It, it's amazing how many times, like here, he's taking particular sins and like spiritualizing them, right? Like he talked about people murdering each other. Here he talks about adulterers and adulteresses. And he's not, he's not specifically talking about them being unfaithful to their spouses, though, though that could tie into it, I suppose. But what he's talking about is they're supposed to be loving God and desiring God and desiring to do God's will and therefore humbling one another and not just being driven by their own desires. And when you're just driven by I want, I want, I want, even in your prayers, you're just driven by I want, I want, I want, it betrays that you love this world. What did Jesus say? He says the person who loves his life loses it. But the person who loses his life for my sake will find it. Yeah? That's difficult. Puts his hand to the person who puts his hand to the plow but looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. In other words, the person who puts his hand to that plow, that farming implement, that tool of labor, which is representative of walking with and following and serving Christ by faith, but looks back, which is representative of his love for the world, that person is not fit for the kingdom of God, Jesus said. That's all in Luke chapter 9. Right? So, it's actually a form of spiritual adultery. Like hating your brother is spiritual murder. Loving, being a friend of the world is spiritual adultery. Are we supposed to walk around and be nasty to people? Are we supposed to like stick our noses up at people who aren't Christians? That's not what he's talking about. No, we actually should be. I mean, Jesus himself was the friend of sinners, right? That's not, that's not what it's... Not what it's talking about. It's not talking about being unfriendly. It's actually quite very much talking about the opposite. It's talking about not loving this world so much that what drives your purpose and what drives how you act, and specifically in view here, is what drives how you treat other Christians is not just your own desire. Pretty simple. Pretty simple. Humble myself. Humble myself and seek what God wants. That's the way of the Christian. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. To be a friend of the world. In other words, whoever is going to love this world and love this life, and allow himself and how he acts, and specifically how he treats other Christians, to be driven by, I want, I want, I want, and not by, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? That person has become a friend of the world. And if you're a friend of the world, what are you? An enemy of God. Why? God's going to destroy the world. The whole pride-driven, self-driven, 
self-motivation-driven, lust-driven world. The whole system of it, the system of it, all of it is going to be destroyed by God. So why would you befriend it? Why would you love it? Why would you walk according to its values and its tenets? Why would you live a life that is strictly driven by whatever I want and I will treat others according to what works best for me? And make yourself an enemy of God. Look at this statement in verse 5. Do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? That's not an exact quotation of anything in the Bible. What, he, what he's doing is basically paraphrasing the general message of the Bible. Right? Like I might come to you and I might say, the Bible says that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead and if you repent and put your faith in Him, you'll have forgiveness and everlasting life. There's no Bible verse that says it exactly like that. But what I've done is what? I've, I've given you a paraphrased summary of the Gospel. Right? That's what James is doing here. He's saying, the Bible says the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. There's a couple of different ways to take this, the word spirit. And I like to read John MacArthur and very, very, very seldom do I arrive at a different point. But I know in the MacArthur Study Bible, he he says the the word spirit should be viewed as the spirit of man. I, I actually, like the New King James translators, believe the capital S is correct because of the word after it, which is who. So the language personifies the Spirit, which to me is an indication that it is referring to the Holy Spirit in Christians. The Holy, in other words, why would you love this world when the Holy Spirit who lives in you yearns jealously? In other words, the Bible teaches us that God is jealous. Exodus chapter 33, go back to the law, actually says... His name is Jealous, with a capital J. Not jealous in the covetous sense, but jealous like a husband would be for his wife or a wife would be for her husband. Right? In other words, using the motif of adulterers and adulteresses, don't you know that if an actual person who's married goes out and pursues a relationship outside of their marriage that the person that they're married to is not going to be real happy about that. And they're going to yearn jealously and probably even get angry. And they're very justified in doing so, right? Because the commitment of marriage is one that is by design to be exclusive of everybody else. Yes? The same is true with our relationship with God versus the lore of the adulterer and adulteress that this world is. The world is trying to lure us away from our full commitment to Christ. And that's why James calls them adulterers and adulterers and says, don't you know that the Bible... Well, he says, how does he set it up? He says, don't, do you think that the Scripture says in vain? In other words, what is it, what is it that would cause you to think that when the Bible tells us that God is a jealous God, it doesn't really mean it. Right? The Scripture says in vain. In other words, do you think the Bible is something you can just set aside when it teaches us that His name is jealous? 
And you read in the example of how God dealt with the Israelites. And the Israelites are are like a perfect example for us, right? Because the Israelites were called to walk in God's ways and God's ways only. And I've shared that with you a number of times recently. In Leviticus chapter 18, you're not going to walk like the Egyptians where I took you out of. You're not going to walk like the Canaanites where I'm taking you. You're going to walk according to my laws. Right? And what did they do? Well... They had no problem, as time went by, especially adopting all of the customs and even the gods of other nations, which led ultimately to their destruction. What were they doing? They were committing spiritual adultery. We are called the same way, to love God, to love one another, to walk according to God's ways in all humility. And when we don't, when we let our pride, when we let our selfishness, when we let our desires govern even how we act towards other Christians and how we speak to or speak about or interface or work with other Christians, when it just becomes about myself, what I'm doing is I'm showing I love this world because it's still about me. Even when I pray, you can fall into this and ask amiss because you're just praying because you want to get your way. God's not interested in just giving us our way. God is in, Listen, God is interested in hearing us pray. God is interested in giving us what we ask for. You know, what, what one among you, if your son asks you for a, a fish, you'll give him a scorpion, or he asks for an egg, and you'll give him a stone. Jesus said this. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Jesus said, right? I mean, God wants to hear our prayers and gifts, but He wants our motives to be His glory, His honor, His exaltation. Now, verses 1 through 5 have been pretty hard. But look at verse 6, and this is where we'll end. Look at verse 6. But, ah, finally a but, right? Finally we get a contrast. Because he's talking about something very heavy and very... Why is it so heavy what he's talking about? Because it leaves Christians... Listen, everyone look at me. Look at me. Look at me. The reason why verses 1 through 5 are so strong is when we live in verses 1 through 5, it leaves the spirits of Christians crushed, wrecked. Now, verse 6, but, and here's the good news, but he gives more grace. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? Even in the midst of like, if you're confronted by God's word and God's word is revealing that maybe my motives and the way I act and the way I pray even are off because it's motivated by self, God's grace is greater than it and God's grace is an infinite supply to help you deal with it. And in His grace, what does He call you to? Therefore, He says, and it's a quotation from Proverbs chapter 3, God resists the proud but gives His grace to the humble. And that's the most, the, the most important statement in this whole chapter is that. Everything that has said before this is about the proud who God resists. But now he's telling you he gives more grace and that grace is given to who? The humble. The humble. Listen, 
Wars and fights come from our desires. Wars and fights come from our lusts. We murder and covet because we want to get our way. But if you recognize that that's wrong and you battle and struggle with that, His grace is there to help. Humble yourself. Abandon your pride. Abandon the self-seeking. Abandon the selfish desire motives for things. Abandon the selfishness even in your prayers. Turn from it and humble yourself. And if you humble yourself before God, what are you going to find? He's going to forgive. He's going to cleanse. He's going to wash. He's going to embrace. He's going to empower. He's going to teach you His way. And isn't that what we want? Isn't that what the Christian wants? I don't want it to be about me. Maybe because of the way I came up. Maybe because of my personality. Maybe because of... Listen, it could even be psychological. Past offenses and I'm just tired of people getting over on me and so I'm going to act out and self Well, Listen, whatever the reason, we can examine the reasons for it. And maybe there's a place to do that. It helps maybe to understand. But, but what God wants to show us and lead us in is the path of humility Because to the humble, what does God do? Showers down His cool shower of grace. Ah, God's grace. Teaching me. Showing me His way. Showing me how to act. Showing me how to speak. Showing me how to treat others. Releasing me from burdens of things that the enemy tries to sow giving me that grace, though Satan should buffet and trials should come. Here, when I humble myself, here is the refreshing shower of God's grace to show me the right way, to show me how to seek His way, to show me how to not love this world, to show me how to love Him, to show me how to be faithful to Him, to show me how to not murder and covet, but to sacrifice and give and love and edify His way. His way. James cared about that. That's why the language is so strong. So Bob texted me and said, man, doesn't pull any punches here. Yeah, because so much is at stake. The very spiritual well-being of brethren is at stake the testimony of Christians, the testimony of God and Jesus in the lost world is at stake. The fruitfulness of the gospel is at stake. More to say. More to say. We left off right at, we, we, we read through a but, and now we're leaving it off at a therefore. We'll come back and we'll catch the therefore next week. You see what the therefore is, right? The therefore, you get some marching orders. Talks about submitting to God. Talks about resisting Satan. Talks about drawing near to God. Here's where you find it. Here's where you really find what God wants to give. That's next week. Let's all stand up together and we'll close in prayer.